Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. My alma mater, University of Michigan, has a fight song that proclaims us the champions of the West. The West in Michigan? Sure, beyond that, you've got the Trans-Mississippi Theater. But what's beyond that? A region unknown to many of us who read about the Civil War. Until the Three-Cornered War, the Union, the Confederacy, and Native peoples in the fight for the West. It's a new book by author Megan Kate Nelson, and Dr. Nelson joins us tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, our usual haunt, but as always not speaking for the university or anyone affiliated with it, nor will my guest speak for anyone but herself. It is uh, interesting times here on campus at ECU. There's construction going on as always, uh, in fact, the uh, parking lot where I normally try to park has been closed for a month now, and they've, they've filled up the, the the big lot that floods every time it rains, the flood lot, as it is colloquially known. Uh, now it's flooded with cars because so many other lots are closed, so much so that they recently redesignated the uh, half-dozen motorcycle parking spaces as regular car spaces by taking down the sign that says motorcycles only. But they didn't repaint the signs or tell anyone this. I happened to be there when they were the, the when the head honcho of parking was discussing it and heard her tell the workers, "Yeah, that's a regular parking space from now on." So while others have been desperately trying to find parking for the last month, I have been parking in the best space in the lot, formerly designated motorcycles only, uh, and not getting ticketed because it's not motorcycles only anymore. If anyone at ECU is listening to this. 
you can park there now, but I know no one is, so I'll continue to park in the best space in the lot until someone else figures out it's not a motorcycle lot anymore. But that's not what's really happening here at EC. The big news this week is that our board of trustees competing for wackiest governance of a university anywhere has been embroiled in a bribery scandal in which two trustees invited a student to lunch and offered the student uh, financial assistance and campaign assistance and information, inside information assistance, etc. If the student would run for student body president, because the student body president is a uh, ex officio member of the board of trustees, which is bitterly divided six and six between two factions of equally uh, feckless business people who think they know what a university is about. Uh, for the most part, and these two, I don't know, clowns is not really a fair word to the circus world, but these two people uh, tried to bribe a student into running so that one, in exchange for, for the student's vote, once they became student body president, they would help the, depose the current board chair and, and help their, their cronies seize power. The student, however, had turned on the cell phone and recorded the entire conversation, which has now been published in transcript, redacted form. Uh, you can Google the ECU board scandal and learn all about this yourself. Uh, the Board of Governors of the whole system are meeting this week to see what they're going to do about this. The Faculty Senate has called on these two people to resign the uh, chair of the board of trustees wants them to resign. They want the board chair to resign. It's just, it's, it's crazy. Um, you never know what will happen in a given week here, and but this one really tests credulity that the, these people are bribing students to run for student body president, the otherwise meaningless title that does carry a board of trustees vote with it. So, fun stuff going on here. Uh, in the university's real work, there was one glimmer of hope uh, that occurred this week. The college offers faculty the incentive of time released from teaching in order to work on their research if they submit a proposal and are awarded uh, this time off. But it has to be, in the past, it had to be time used writing a grant that would secure external funding to support your research. And if you're in the hard sciences or you have laboratories that cost tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars, you need external funding to do your research. So you <clears throat> you write grants, you get funded, then you do your work. And the college had this competition where you would get release time for your research as long as it was generating external funding. This past month, the, somebody in the college came to their senses and pointed out funding is just the means to the end. Research is to generate knowledge. And those of us in the history department who don't need a lot of money, we don't need $100,000 to set up a physics experiment. We need enough money to buy gas and drive to uh, a distant city where we sleep on a friend's couch and go to the archive during the day. Uh, so we don't compete for grants because we don't need the money for our research. 
And they finally changed the rules where now you can also get release time not just for getting money for research, but for actually doing research. If you're writing a book, they will give you time if you have write a sufficient proposal. It's it's such a small thing, but when a good thing happens, it's, it's rare enough that I thought I would share it with you tonight. There are plenty of good things happening here at Civil War Talk Radio, on the other hand. Uh, with the show's upcoming next week is the anniversary of the birth of Abraham Lincoln, and we will uh, recognize that with the discussion of one of the least known moments in Lincoln's presidential career, the moment when he uh, invaded the South personally. The book is called Lincoln Takes Command, The Campaign to Seize Norfolk and the Destruction of the CSS Virginia. Steve Norder is the author. He'll be with us, and we'll talk about Lincoln on Lincoln's birthday. We'll have William Griffin the following week, who has a remarkable website of Civil War letter transcriptions, a labor of love that uh, you will really enjoy looking at. On the 26th of February 2020, which is where we are now, uh, Thomas Brown joins us with his most recent book, Civil War Monuments and the Militarization of America. In March, we'll start the month with a book called Andersonville Raiders, Yankee versus Yankee in the Civil War's Most Notorious Prison Camp. Uh, The author's name on the cover is Gary Morgan. And then it'll be time for spring break, and we'll just all kick back and have more shows after that. So lots coming up on Civil War Talk Radio. Follow it on uh, the internet at www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney keeps things up to date, tells us what's going on, and hosts the PayPal button that you can click on and donate money to Civil War Talk Radio that I can use to bribe students to run for office or whatever I want because it's not a tax-deductible donation. So, lots going on. Uh, Send your suggestions. Let me know what you're interested in hearing, and we'll try to get those on as well as the season continues. Tonight we are talking about the Civil War in the Far West, Uh, A topic we have not discussed enough on this show, I recognize that. Uh, We had the discussion of the 1st Oregon Cavalry a few weeks ago uh, up in the Pacific Northwest. Now we turn to New Mexico and Arizona. The topic of a book called The Three-Cornered War, The Union, the Confederacy, and Native Peoples in the Fight for the West. The author is a friend of the show returning uh, for a second time, uh, Megan Kate Nelson. Megan, are you there? I am here, yes. Thanks so much for having me, Jerry. <laughs> well, welcome back to the show. Um, Thank it, you. It's I have always... to say, I'm, I am very shocked that you have given away the location of your secret parking space. Well, you know, it, I, I was once told by a, 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 a well-known academic uh, administrator that the key to administrative success as a college president was to provide the three things that the three main constituencies most care about. He said there must be sex for the students, football tickets for the alumni, and parking yep. for the faculty. And uh, <laughs> you know that's what we're all most passionate about, certainly. Uh, oh, yeah. So uh, 
<laughs> it, it, I know. I've been it, away from the university for a little while, but I vividly remember the, yeah. the keen and vicious competition for parking spaces. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The the uh, the coveted A license that allows you to hunt for the nearby spaces, or the B <laughs> license that I have. But now you mentioned um, academia, and you you were last on the show here in. in in 2013, when you were uh, fighting the good fight, uh, making your way through the the morass of applications and tenure, and since then, I understand you have struck out on your own. I have, yes. I made the the leap away from academia. I think the last time we talked, I was adjuncting, and mm-hmm. I just published *Ruined Nation*, which we talked about, which was great. Right, and um, I had thought that that the publication of that book might get me another tenure track job, and it did not. Mm. And I sort of belatedly figured out that I had published a little too much to be hireable, which is a crazy <laughs> situation. <laughs> uh, but that's the way academia works most of the time, Um, Mm -hmm. and I had had this idea for the book that would become The Three-Cornered War, and I thought that it was a good enough idea, and the way I wanted to write about it uh, was compelling enough that maybe I could get a trade book contract, which would actually pay me to write the book, which is also a novel sort of (laughs) idea um, in academia that anyone would actually, you know, pay you to write uh, before um, you publish the book. And so, uh, so yeah, I, I decided to just take a leap of faith and see if I could do some research and work up a book proposal and thought that if I could sell it to an agent, that would be my first um, sort of hoop uh, and Mm -hmm. uh, was able to do that. Yeah. And uh, so that's what I've been doing. Well, this this book, I'm looking at uncorrected proof here, uh, but it says on sale uh, February 11th, 2020 from Scribner. So you've got a major, major publisher. I did, yes. Um, and it's been really interesting um, writing for them. I mean, I think the editorial experience is, is quite similar. Um, you know, editors at academic presses and trade presses are equally good and equally mm-hmm. invested in you as a writer, but the, the kind of writing that they expect and really push you toward is, is quite different, um, which I'm sure you found when you <laughs> read the book. It is not uh, structured like a traditional academic history. No, it's not. It, it, and uh, that that's all to the good in that it, it's extremely readable and uh, uh, informative. It, it doesn't matter how good your thesis is if no one's reading your book. Uh, so right. so that's the first step. But you make an interesting point, which I, I'm imagining not every listener is aware of, that when you write for an academic press uh, – Maybe there's some money at the end of the line, maybe not. Uh, if you attempt to negotiate with them, they are shocked because they're giving you the prestige that will get you tenure. They don't need to actually give you money. Right. Uh, and indeed, yeah. that, that, I mean, and, and sometimes they'll even ask for, uh, what, what's, uh, well, what's that term? The, um, uh, it's slipping my mind when they want money from you up front. Uh, subvention. Oh, right, too. Pay for various production costs or, yeah. <laughs> or anything like that. Yeah. So you're paying them to publish your book. Uh, yeah. it, it's it's a ludicrous, it's a crazy world. Uh, but in the Civil War historical world, fortunately, there is enough public interest to support a book like you've produced here. So um, how how long did this project take? 
So I first started thinking about it about 10 years ago, which seems like a really long time. Um, Usually I find my next project while I'm kind of finishing up uh, the one that I'm working on. And and that was the case here, although I had I had really started thinking about it even earlier before, you know, and sort of during I was even writing Ruination because when I started teaching Civil War history, and I think, you know, you know this, like when you, when you are teaching, you really do a lot of research and you kind of right. go in and figure out, you know, how you want to structure the class and how, um, what kinds of topics to cover. And I was teaching Civil War history at both Texas Tech and Cal State Fullerton, and in my research for my courses, I, I discovered these battles that took place uh, in New Mexico, Valverde and Apache Canyon Glorieta Pass, and I, I was just sort of astounded because I had never heard about any of these engagements before in anything I'd seen about Civil War history. I've read about Civil War history, and I'm from Colorado, and I, I would have thought that growing up there someone would have taught me, either a teacher or someone in a museum or a historical society, that there were Civil War battles between Union and Confederate troops and between the Union and the Confederacy and and Native peoples in New Mexico and Arizona, and that Colorado soldiers took part in some of those battles. Um, But I didn't hear any of that when I was growing up. You know, we had the kind of Colorado history of pioneers and silver mining and some Indian wars, but they were usually later um, in the 19th century and sort of pitched and are talked about in a different context, not the Civil War. So when I first read about this, I, I was sort of amazed and I wanted to know more about it. And then I also wanted to know why I didn't know more about it. <laughs> and like, how did it happen that this entire region, you know, 40% of the nation's landmass just literally is cut off the map. Like, if you look at any Civil War history book that has, you know, the seat of war map in the beginning, right. most of the time that map ends in central Texas. You know, there, there's the... nothing <laughs> west of there, which is just extraordinary. It it really is. And, and even, I think I'd heard of Valverde, certainly, but... I knew nothing significant about it till reading this, and I want to ask you about that and many other things in the book. We'll take a short break first, though, and get some announcements in and come right back. We're talking today with Megan Kate Nelson, author of The Three-Cornered War, The Union, the Confederacy, and Native Peoples in the Fight for the West. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Have we got a high energy, all access sports show for you? It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific for Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. 
Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Megan Kate Nelson, author of The Union, The Confederacy, and Native Peoples in the Fight for the West. That's the subtitle. The book is called The Three-Cornered War. Uh, Megan, we were talking about the the, uh, lack of attention paid to the war traditionally. I recall... uh, when when uh, David Herbert Donald was teaching Civil War at Harvard, uh, and I was graduate assisting one of his classes, and he used a theory that semester of uh, multiple shadow nations, not just the North and the South, but the Midwest is a separate nation, New England separate, uh, and I think the Far West, uh, New Mexico, Arizona, into California, counted as one. But even there, um, I'm really just using it as a way to remind listeners that I have a Harvard degree uh, and that you do also. Uh, uh, were we there at the same time? I, when, when did you – you were undergraduate. I was an undergrad from 90 to 94. Okay. I, I, I got – I left in 91 and actually finished my doctorate in 94. But, okay. Uh, we probably overlapped. Not, we must have overlapped somewhere in Robinson Hall. We may have passed right. uh, in the yeah. hallway at some point. So, um, more important point uh, is that you are writing here not just about an, an, an understudied part of the war, but you're using uh, techniques, as, as you alluded to in the first section, that are not what we normally see in academic books. Instead of a, a, a analytical framework or a straight chronological narrative, you have a series of uh, chapters, each featuring a, a main character. They, they recur, they keep coming back uh, for the, the reader to follow, but you've got, besides military officers, you've also got military men in the ranks, you've got wives of officers, you've got uh, Indian leaders and wives of Indian leaders. How did you make the selection of who would be the representative voices for this book? Well, that, that was a really fun part of the process. It was really interesting to kind of go through and see who I could find to, to really voice all of these different experiences in the Far West. Because what I figured out pretty early on is that there, there were a lot of different communities involved. Mm-hmm. And that the challenge was going to be, 
how to tell all of their stories in a way that made sense, and then also bring the reader in kind of on the ground and to get to know some people. Um, and so pretty clearly from the start, um, I knew that John Baylor needed to be a major figure um, because I knew I wanted to start the book with his invasion of New Mexico territory with his Texas Mounted Rifles. And he's a fascinating man in his own right. So, and um, he, He's quite a prize. I, yeah. He, he's, he's quite he, a guy, yeah. Yeah, he... Um, you know, like all of the people in the book are very complex because they're human mm-hmm. beings. Um, he was extraordinarily racist and violent and mm-hmm. self-absorbed and ambitious. Um, and all of those qualities shaped his decision-making in the West. He was also extremely charismatic. His men loved him. Uh, he wrote love poetry to his wife. Um, unfortunately, none of that love, love poetry, as far as I can tell, exists. <laughs> in mm. a place where I can read it. I was really hoping to find it um, in my research. Uh, that would have been mm. fascinating. But, um, but I, so he, he was very clearly, you know, someone who was taking action that was moving um, the campaign, the Confederate campaign for the West forward and was really articulating a lot of the aims of the Confederacy in the West, which was to, you know, establish this thoroughfare from Western Texas to California and to really kind of take over and occupy Southern California at the very least to gain access to to gold mines and to Pacific ports. And he created the Confederate Territory of Arizona kind of for that purpose, to extend the Confederacy's uh, border westward so that then um, hopefully Sibley's army could just march, you know, right down um, the Butterfield Mail route uh, to Los Angeles and, um, and, create basically a, a continental confederacy. So I knew that he needed to be uh, a, a major figure. And um, another one of the first people I found was Alonzo Ickes, uh, whose diary is in the collections of the Western History Collection at the Denver Public Library. And I had just started, you know, my parents are from Colorado, so I went to go visit them, and I was just doing the first bits of my research there um, and at History Colorado at, the, at their archive and library. And Ickes' diary is there kind of in really good condition, and a lot of his letters were published uh, in the 1950s, collected and published. So I knew a fair bit about him, and he was one of these guys who was, you know, a young, he's kind of a a quite typical Civil War soldier in his early 20s, had, um, but the way he's atypical is that he left home in Iowa uh, to go to Colorado as part of the gold rush in the spring of 1859. And so he and his older brother went, and they were there in the fall of 1861 when a call came um, from uh, the commander in New Mexico to wanting soldiers from Colorado to come help defend against the Confederate invasion. And he keeps a pretty meticulous record of his entire experience um, of that campaign. And, you know, a lot of it is overwritten, and there's some sort of past-present fuzziness. Um, but it was pretty close to the ground. And mm-hmm. I also was quite appealing because, you know, after reading the book, he doesn't hold much back. 
You know, he no, talks <laughs> quite openly about how drunk he gets, um, how drunk his friends get, the fights they get in, um, the fandangos they go to, which are dances in New Mexico, and how pretty the women are, and how much he loves them, and he doesn't want to leave them. And, and you know, he also is pretty openly racist about uh, the his fellow soldiers um, in the Army of New Mexico, who are Hispano New Mexicans in the first New Mexico volunteers. Um, but he could, you know, he he comments on pretty much everything. And so, whenever you have uh, that combination of someone who is in the mix, they're they are engaging, you know, in in the context of civil war history, they are in battles that are important. They are observant, and then they also give you a sense of what life is like on the ground. I mean, I think though that's when you know you're you found your person. Um, but then there were some other people like um, Louisa Canby and Juanita, um, two women. You referenced them earlier. Mm-hmm. They're both married to commanders. Um, Louisa Canby is married to E.R.S. Canby, who um, most, I think, Civil War readers and historians know as Edward Canby, but his entire family called him Richard. <laughs> so <laughs> that I, because the the most of the discussion of him is from Louisa's uh, viewpoint. I call him Richard throughout. So um, that is why. And I didn't discover mm-hmm. that, actually, until I, I went and read through the Canby papers at the Filson Historical Society. So that's, well, that's one of the reasons you do primary document research, and you don't just rely on, on secondary sources. But um, Louisa Canby did not actually leave. She only left one letter um, that I could find in her own handwriting, and it was from later in the war when, when she was um, on her way to New Orleans to join her husband in 1864. So that wasn't particularly helpful. Um, but enough people wrote about her, uh, and, enough, and I knew where her husband was the whole time, mm-hmm. um, so that I was able to actually build her story. And the same with Juanita. She was married to Manuelito, who's a very powerful Navajo headman, um, who resisted um, and fought against the Union Army um, and had uh, a long history of um, fighting Spanish and then Mexican and then American troops who were in- invading his homeland. And, you know, she is with him constantly through the war, so the Union Army was very interested in capturing him. And so I could track her movements through him. And then also Navajo oral histories that have been handed down through families um, have come down to a historian who's at the University of New Mexico, uh, Jennifer Dennedale, and she wrote a lovely book um, about her her relatives, about her ancestors, Juanita and Manuelito. So I was able to then piece together her um, biography and get a sense of her as a Navajo woman navigating this conflict and being kind of in the middle of it. One of the characters in the book that doesn't get any speaking lines or a chapter title, but by the time I was done, I thought, this, this is the main character, is the landscape itself. Which, for someone who doesn't, uh, I'm probably speaking for a fair number of listeners, when I get to the chapter, the obligatory chapter, and there was some fighting out west, uh, I picture everything west of the middle of Texas to be a a single, flat, hot plain from there until you get just outside of Los Angeles. And, of course, that's not what the landscape is at all. And you show that very vividly, that... uh, the landscape really shapes every action in this book. 
It really does. And I'm, I'm so glad that you had that reaction because that's what I was trying to convey. When I did my research for the book, I drove out um, first to Colorado and then I was in New Mexico and Arizona and Texas. And so I've been in all the places that I describe in the book. And it can be really valuable to be in the landscape because it exactly it it kind of blows up your myth about what the desert actually looks like. Um, I was amazed at how much vegetation there actually was uh, mm-hmm. in the desert around the Rio Grande. Um, it gets a li- it gets much sparser the more you move west, kind of toward Tucson. But um, there's a lot of vegetation. It's more rolling than you would think. And I didn't actually know. I was doing research um, at New Mexico State in Las Cruces, and um, that's right around uh, where the action was taking place in the first chapter of the book, um, where John mm-hmm. Baylor. Um, you know, has a, a brief skirmish with the troops at Fort Fillmore and then kind of chases them up into the Oregon mountains. And so I had taken my, my bicycle on this trip, mm. and I decided to ride um, part of the road that kind of goes up to um, San Augustine Pass. And I hadn't realized it. When you read the documents, you don't know this. But when you are actually on the road, the desert road is actually going uphill, for 10 hmm. miles before it even hits the foothills. Wow. So what so you understand you about that then, yeah, so, so in, in that first chapter, I describe, um, you know, the, the wagons are slowing down. The, you know, the Federals are trying to flee over the mountains, and they, they're, all of their, their horses are slowing down, all their wagons are lagging, lagging really far behind, and part of it is that it's a sandy road, but part of it is they're actually going uphill <laughs> during this entire time as the sun is rising and as it's getting hotter. And I would not have known that if I had not been there and I had not seen it for myself and been in the landscape. Um, also, one of the things, I mean, if you've ever traveled to this area, to the high desert, a couple of things become really apparent. First, um, everything is very dry. So the aridity mm-hmm. is quite powerful. And then also, uh, you are quite high in elevation. You're really at around kind of the lowest point is probably around 3,000 feet of elevation. And then you can get as high, um, you know, the soldiers who were fighting at Glorieta were fighting at about probably 8,000, 8,500 feet. Um, oh. And for the soldiers coming from Texas, this was a huge problem for them, and it had very kind of strange consequences that they didn't anticipate. One of them um, is was that, just for example, that they had these wagons that were made in eastern Texas, and the further west they went, the higher and drier it got. And their wagons started to shrink. And hmm. so they started spitting out nails and collapsing. So they're literally falling <laughs> apart. Literally falling apart. Um, and that is one of those crazy things when you think about, you know, the environmental history of warfare. Logistics is so important, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, transporting people and animals and provisions and weapons is so important. And this is, you know, Henry Sibley did okay with kind of spreading his troops out on the road to manage water supplies. But he didn't anticipate that at all. And... It- it's just this is just one of those ways that the the environment and the climate kind of acts on um, soldiers who are trying to fight a war in in really interesting ways. Well, and you point out the importance of logistics. The the Confederates win the 
the one real pitched battle at Valverde that, that you mentioned, which I was fascinated uh, to read that there was the snow at one point during the battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It, it, and again, you don't think of snow in the desert, but there they are. Uh, yep. So, so it's not what what one pictures, and there's woods and water and other things. Uh, but the the real decisive moment is is, is Glorieta Pass, where the Union uh, officer Shevington captures the wagon train of the Confederates, and that's that's the end of the game. Without their wagons, the whole campaign is over. Yep, because they had you know they had to provision themselves, and this this was Sibley's one of his big miscalculations is that he thought that once they moved into New Mexico territory that. Hispano-New Mexicans, who he assumed to be kind of anti-U.S. federal government because they had just come into the country and were, were citizens, but we're not, you know, we're clearly second-class citizens and might not be so amenable um, to the Union Army's um, power in, in their territory. And he thought that he could, that they would just flock to the Confederate cause and that then they would, then they would provision him mm-hmm. all the way from El Paso all the way up to Santa Fe. Uh, that did not turn out to be the case, um, partly because he had completely, either he didn't know or he had forgotten or just didn't care about the fact that Texas had invaded New Mexico once before in 1841, and it, that had not succeeded. <laughs> and they, uh, the, the Texas troops who, who went there were arrested and marched to Mexico City, and many of them died. And so... New, Hispano New Mexicans had a long-standing hatred of Texans, mm. and there was no way they were going to help them, uh, even if they might have some issues with the federal government. So they hid all their food, or they gave it to the to Union troops, and so there was a real crisis um, with the Confederate supply train because they just didn't have, you know, they they took some forcibly, um, but. Part of the problem for them with fighting at Valverde is that they circled around Fort Craig and they decided not to to fight there and not to take the fort. And if they had taken the fort, they would have been provisioned um, much more effectively, but they were not. And so they had to have all these wagons with them, which created vulnerability. And, you know, Shivington, who becomes, you know, a, a... pretty terrible leader of men um, in the Sand Creek Massacre later in the war, mm-hmm. is a genius at this point. Um, and he and the commander, um, John Slow, from, uh, who was a Denver lawyer, kind of cooked up this plan to do this flanking maneuver at Glorietta and came around the back and captured the wagon train, the Confederate wagon train, and destroyed it. And without the means to, to supply themselves, to, without any food, without any way to carry water, um, they also commandeered, you know, all the animals that were tied up back there. And without that, you are, you're pretty much the, the most vulnerable it. you could ever be. Like, and, and so their campaign was just over at that point. Oh, that, they could only retreat. It, that was their only option. Which they did, uh, which ends the major military fighting. But a lot more goes on, and there's a lot more in this book. We're going to take another short break. We're talking tonight with Megan Kate Nelson, author of The The Three-Cornered War, subtitled The Union, the Confederacy, and Native Peoples in the Fight for the West. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, discussing the three-cornered war, the Union, the Confederacy, and Native peoples in the fight for the West with author Megan Kate Nelson. This... Uh, if we're talking about the war in the the far west, I would absolutely be remiss to some old friends from one of the uh, This Hallowed Ground tours through Virginia that I uh, lead each year if I did not raise the engagement at uh, Picacho Peak, the <laughs> most westernmost engagement. Uh, this became a, a, a running storyline with us one year, and uh, – I know my listeners uh, from that year want to hear about this. As, as The thing that strikes me about this battle is, as I understand it, they do reenactments of it, and it may be the only Civil War battle where the number of people reenacting it outnumber those who were actually there at the time. Uh, yes. Yet it did have Absolutely. significance. It did. It did. I mean, it was, it was one of those moments... Um, where you see the Confederate army sort of reaching uh, into the West. You know, Baylor had sent um, a pretty small contingent of troops, only about 100 men, um, west from Mesilla in New Mexico Territory, which is in the southern part, um, sent them west to Tucson. And their purpose there, while Sibley was kind of going north to fight the, the, 
the larger Union Army under Camby, um, their purpose was to scout out the road and try to fight um, any Chiricahua Apaches that they ran into, and then and defeat them. Baylor had no um, no qualms that uh, that they would be beaten. He was pretty sure of of Confederate military abilities um, when he really shouldn't have been, but. Um, he sent Sherrod Hunter uh, and this group of Arizona Rangers kind of west to Tucson, and then he, the orders that he gave them was, you know, occupy Tucson, claim it for the Confederacy, and then kind of probe further westward and see if we can, you know, make any alliances with any other kind of Native peoples along the road. Um, they knew that the Pima and Maricopa people were were to the west of Tucson, and they were big agriculturalists um, and had basically been supplying um, gold miners and migrants along that road for years. And so Baylor thought that would that would be a good alliance to make because then they could get, um, again, more supplies to sort of launch the Confederate Army into California. And they thought, um, quite rightly, because, you know, there were many towns and mining camps in the West that were full of both Northerners and Southerners and had quite a Mm -hmm. strong secessionist uh, group. And, in fact, the city of Tucson had been full of secessionists and who had lobbied um, not only for secession from New Mexico territory earlier, you know, in the late 1850s, but then also um, for secession along with the, the Confederacy. So he was pretty sure that he was going to be able to kind of establish for the Confederacy a couple of different footholds along that road um, in the West. And so the, the Confederates, who were kind of pickets out there at Pacacho Peak, um, which is west of Tucson, kind of between there and Pima Villages, um, they were there kind of as part of that vanguard. And one of the things that they were doing was destroying um, hay caches that the Union Army that was coming from California under um, James Henry Carleton had already kind of established on their way east. Um, So they knew that Carleton's army uh, was likely on the way, but they didn't know where it was. And so that clash at Picacho Peak was important not only for, it was important for the Confederates to know that the, this army was really, truly on the way, um, and it was 2,000 men, which is a significant force. Um, and then for the Union, it was important for them to know that the Confederates had, had actually gotten that far westward. Uh, and, but then they started to push them back by the time um, Carleton got to Tucson. Um, Hunter had already evacuated and was on his way back to Messiah because he knew, I mean, he only had probably 75 guys at that point. He was not going to be able to take on this entirely new army uh, marching in, um, even though they were, you know, pretty exhausted from their own long, long march through the desert. Um, but that's, that's why that battle was important. And it, and it was, um, I mean, interestingly, for, for that section of the theater where it was Carlton's First California um, it was the, the, the skirmish until they got to Apache Pass and fought the Chiricahua Apaches. It was their greatest loss of life. Um, Carlton, remarkably, had lost no one um, on the march from Los Angeles to that point, um, which is a very long, another very long march through the desert uh, with cached provisions and provisions they were carrying with them, which is sort of remarkable. Um, but they, they lost some men there, and they took some, some Confederates captive. And so that was important to, to be able to question those prisoners and know where all of um, Sibley's army was and where Baylor's men were kind of in the southwest because 
they didn't actually know. There was no telegraph. Uh, there was no mail running <laughs> along this road. Um, so Carlton was sort of marching blind uh, eastward. And so that, that's really why that, that uh, kind of, if you want to call it a battle or a skirmish, mm-hmm. I won't get into that fight. Um, but uh, but uh, it, it does have significance, I think, for it both armies at this point. It did have consequences. Yeah. The, yep. uh, the, the distances these armies march is also remarkable. It dwarfs the distances we read about in Virginia or even in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. But with only uh, just a few minutes left, we really haven't talked about the third corner of this war. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the native people, the, you, we just talked about the Union officer, Carlton, uh, he will eventually attempt to round up the Navajo people, uh, okay. and and uh, the story that you tell goes on after 1865. It's the the war may end for the Union and Confederate forces, but the question of who will dominate this land goes on for for years. Exactly. Yes, and and Carlton is one of those figures who. He is incredibly important for basically enacting um, Union Indian policy uh, okay. through the force, you know, through the strength of the of the Union Army in this region. Um, after Glorieta and after the the long retreat of the Confederates back to Texas, this all happened in the spring and summer of 1862. Um, you know, the Union government was pretty secure in the fact that they had taken control of the West, at least from the Confederates. Um, And so they started to pass all kinds of legislation. This is also one of the reasons that this theater is important, um, is that it's important for union economic um, policy and for political organization. And so the Homestead Act is passed, the Pacific Railway Act. Um, Congress (laughs) creates a Department of Agriculture. And all of this is, is geared towards settling the West with white farmers. And in order to do that, they had to either exterminate or remove Native peoples. And so this became Carleton's focus. After the, the fall of 1862, he really started thinking about this. And he had had his men had, um, had tangled with the Chiricahua Apaches at Apache Pass in the summer of 1862 when they were on the march. And so he became convinced that they were never going to surrender. And so he launched a campaign against them in the fall of 1863. And then uh, the Navajos had had such a long history of battling the U.S. Army in that region. And, and Carlton had served there before, so he was quite familiar. And um, what also added to his kind of impetus for launching the campaign against Navajos is that gold had been discovered in the mountains of Arizona. And one of the main access roads to get to those gold mines um, went west from Albuquerque through Navajo country. And so he wanted to kind of clear that land out. He wanted to kind of kill two birds, right? He wanted to defeat uh, the Navajos finally and put an end to this kind of long Navajo war that had been going on for a while. And then he also wanted to clear the way for miners and farmers to kind of get to these new gold mines um, to, you know, sort of make something out of the West. And so he sent Kit Carson, who was his favorite um, officer, um, sent him in to... uh, launch a hard war campaign against Navajos in the fall of 1863. Um, and so, you know, a full year before Sherman um, engaged in the same kind of action um, in Georgia and South Carolina. And, 
you know, they really went in with the intent to completely destroy all of the Navajo's crops so that they couldn't save them for winter, um, to burn down their Hogan's, which were their winter residences, and basically to, to take as many of their sheep as possible because the sheep were the sort of engine of the Navajo economy and culture. And they were very successful at that. And so when winter came, which is very harsh in the, the high desert, lots of snow um, and, you know, not a lot of, of animals to find to hunt. And so um, the Navajo people had been relying on all of, you know, all of their grains and fruits that they had produced and, um and the union had kind of taken that away from them. And so they were in pretty bad shape by January when Kit Carson launched the sort of ultimate campaign into Canyon Deshay, which is the topic of one of the, the chapters in which you see Carson's viewpoint and then you also see Juanita's viewpoint um, at this moment. And this was really the expression of Carlton's plan and also the union's plan um, to no longer re- make treaties in these instances um, to make war upon Native peoples and then force them to surrender and then remove them to reservations where they would be controlled and surveilled by Union troops. Um, And there is a way in which we can see them as prisoners of war. Carleton referred to them as prisoners throughout uh, his time in New Mexico um, and captives uh, in some cases, he called them. And um, by the time most of the surrenders were over, it took about two years, um, there were almost 10,000, you know, somewhere between 8,000 and 10,000 men and women and children um, living in this kind of 40-square-mile reservation along the Pecos River in New Mexico. Um, and the, the story of that removal, which the Navajos called the Long Walk, and the story of their years at Bosque Redondo, which they called Waildy, which translates into Land of Suffering, really dominates the last part of the book, because this is where I think you really see um, what the, the Republican Party's vision for the West was, and then how the Civil War was kind of helping them make that manifest. It is uh, it, it, a story that many readers will not know anything about. I'll count myself among those. Uh, and it has a, a interesting twist at the end. You mentioned uh, General Sherman. Uh, I'm going to leave that out of our conversation and to give the readers one more reason to buy the book and read it and switch gears in our last minute and ask the Civil War time machine question. If you could go back for 30 minutes in perfect safety, and then return to the present. To talk to one person, you've got so many fascinating characters here. Could you choose one that you would spend that time with? I think it would be Juanita, because Mm -hmm. I think she's really the heart of the book. She is the only one who is there from the beginning to the end. Um, And we know a lot about her, and we have... um, you know, some textiles that she produced, we, you know, know where she was and and generally what her experience was, but I would really love to hear it in her voice. You know, women were the storytellers and the keepers of history and still are in Navajo culture. And so just to be able to, you know, sit and listen if she were willing to tell me her story, um, you know, I'm not sure that she would, but if, if she were willing, that would be really incredible and I think would would give me even more insight uh, into the Navajo experience during this period. Well, uh, 
historians are the storytellers of, of our culture as well, and you have certainly done that in this book. Listeners, uh, the book comes out February 11th, 2020. It is called The Three-Cornered War, The Union, the Confederacy, and Native Peoples in the Fight for the West. If you've read enough about Shiloh and Gettysburg and, and want to really broaden your knowledge of the Civil War. It had that effect for me. I'm guessing it will for you. I highly recommend it. Uh, and I thank the author, Megan Kate Nelson, for joining me on the show tonight. Megan, it's a pleasure talking with you. Yes, it was wonderful. Thanks for having me back. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.